Hey everyone, first off, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past and present. And we would also like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Let's go! Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences. Produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association, I am your familiar stranger today, Jared, together with my familiar strangers, Alex. Hello there. Caroline. Hi. And Joe. Hi. Before we dive in today's discussion, do you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insights on today's episode. So, what are you thinking this week, Carolyn? This week, I have been on a very interesting part of TikTok, the Reborn Doll part of TikTok. Now, for those of you who don't know, Reborn Dolls are essentially what used to be just like your regular like baby doll that you get from like the kids section at Kmart, repainted to have veins, to look more lifelike. They've taken out the eyes and put in glass eyes. Some of them have beating heartbeats. Some of them are temperature controlled. Some of them will giggle and make noises. And they retail from anywhere between 250 to 1,000 pounds per doll. So many questions. (laughs) (laughs) Hit me with them, Alex. Okay, I feel leading with veins was an interesting choice. <laughs> Hyper real babies. The name reborn comes from the idea that they're like rebirthing these almost like characterized versions of humans into like hyper realistic versions. Very uncanny valley. Anyone listening in will put some links up and like uncanny valley is definitely the name of the game. So I guess question number one is you quoted the price in pounds. Is this a particularly UK thing? Yes. So the movement of reborns kind of started towards the end of the 80s and reborns are used primarily amongst adults. It isn't really a children's toy. The dolls can be used for a variety of different needs from therapeutic methods to PTSD treatments, as well as just general like hobbyists and people who like to collect the dolls because they consider them to be a work of art. But it's something that very much started in Europe and there are big trade shows in Europe. I've watched a few documentaries that are German based, but it's all over the world now. And it's really kind of exploded with this visibility that the community has found on the internet through finding other people to be uh, in solidarity with for their treatments and therapy, as well as other people that they can sort of role play and perform with on platforms like TikTok. Or YouTube. Okay, I have another question about the consumers of these dolls. Because after you stated the price range, I guess because we're a bunch of anthropologists and start thinking about the social, cultural, economic background of these consumers, they are just middle-aged white women from mostly English-speaking countries. TikTok has a definitely a younger demographic, I would say, than a lot of other profiles that I've read. I've found accounts of girls 
with Reborns who are as young as 17 or 12 and then as old as 49, 50. They are really expensive. There is a real like monetization of this hobby in the sense that people are earning like money by making this content, which then allows them to buy more dolls. And the more money they spend, the more realistic they are, which then continues to sort of play into the myth of them. Are they real? Are they not real? And that's kind of like the question that everyone has, I suppose. Just on the age thing, Carolyn, mm. there were some who were 17 and 12 and sort of in those teenage years. What this partly made me think of was the assignment that some teenagers are given in high school where they're expected to care for like a fake baby as a way of preparing them for what, you know, life might be like when they become mothers. Can you explain like how different this is from that or is this sort of a obvious version of that? That's a really good question and I've been I've been thinking about that a lot because I got to do that. I got to take a baby home from school and it pooped. We didn't have this fancy ass doll that stuff we were just given a friggin egg you have to name an egg times have changed alex times yeah, have changed. Apparently. we i remember in high school because i went to an all-girls school we were all very excited to take the baby home because you know female roles yeah i've been thinking about the differences between sort of that school assignment versus sort of like this hobbyist take on it and they are very similar especially with this sort of advanced technology that's going into dolls now in terms of like you can feed the dolls and people will talk about creating formula and looking after them and that sort of thing i think the main difference is sort of the ongoing costs and the ongoing like role play that's associated with the reborns as opposed to just having a doll for the weekend to look after because the focus with that is more on sort of like looking after the biological functions and I question whether it's used as a deterrent to stop younger girls from getting pregnant because they're not aware of all of the issues whereas with reborns you can either ascribe a lot of responsibility to them or not at the same time. It's sort of up to the individual how, I guess, serious they want to take it. So some creators will start talking about bedtime routines and will show videos of the dolls watching things on YouTube, like kid shows on YouTube. And then other people will just kind of put them in a chair and put them away and that's their spot, you know. So it's, yeah, it's very different as to how people kind of treat their dolls as well. What you said reminded me of a doll that used to be sold where you could kind of feed it and it would poo its diaper. Baby born. Yeah. <laughs> I had one. It was called um, Rebecca. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but in a weird way, do these even do that no they don't they're weighted i think that's the appeal of them so they're silicon skin and they're weighted with grain so they actually don't really have the body parts in order to be able to like do that okay because nothing's connected (laughs) but i was thinking about this and i find that's interesting because that turns and i'm gonna put like motherhood in Mm -hmm. air quotes there into much more of a one-way relationship than it would be with a newborn or at least if it's one way, it's normally the other way, where, like, that little sucker needs you. Whereas if you're not even having to tend for it, all your options are up to you, no? Like like you said, you set the bounds on how much you engage with that doll. Yeah, there's a real, like, like fantasy and performativity and, like, the replication of a real-life doll or encouraging play, I think, and imaginary play too. So one thing that I find really interesting about this is that when when we are children and we are like having that imaginary playtime there's no audience really except for us like we're a part of the story we're controlling it 
but there's no one else watching us. It's only for ourselves and our own enjoyment. But when you bring in social media, then all of a sudden that playtime has an audience and it has money tied to it. And your fantasy, well, in this case, is really tied to realism and replicating that realism for your audience. And I think a lot of that realism is also contained in the materiality of the product. But these are very lifelike and the care and attention that goes into like crafting the hair, how the eyes look very precise. I think that's part of what really separates this from other sort of types of play where you get to act out motherhood, fatherhood, or just being a parental figure. So when you were talking earlier, I was thinking of Tamagotchis and how <laughs> they were just the coolest thing to have when I was in primary school. And this is obviously very different because this is a very real heavy thing that actually they're with you rather than just pixels on screen. Yeah, and other people can interact with them too. So I've spoken a lot about Reborns on my Instagram this week and kind of gathering how other people felt about them because there is this uncanny valley aspect to them in the sense that you feel a little unsettled because they're so human and lifelike and you don't know whether they are real or not. But then there's this dynamic as well with people who encounter the babies in real life because a lot of these videos are all about, it's typically women using the dolls that will take them out in prams and strollers and go into very family-friendly spaces with the dolls. And so there is this interaction that can exist between sort of the motherly figure in the sense, the the baby and the doll and, and, and other people as well that didn't really exist when we had Tamagotchis beyond all of us just kind of sharing and playing together. They don't seem to be hiding the fact that they're dolls. Like they're quite happy for people to, ha- to ask about it, but at the same time they're perpetuating and kind of like reinforcing how babies would act and wanting them to look as real as possible as well. So it's quite an interesting dynamic going on. Yeah, I'm wondering about, you know, because there's so much maternal and feminine energy towards caring for these dolls, what about partners of these women that own the dolls? Are they involved in the baby's life? Do they have like this kind of fatherly figure where they... With the yeah. because of the girlfriend, they change nappies or like feed them and all that, even though they think it's completely, you know, bullshit. You don't hear from the partners. <laughs> Again, in the Vice documentary, the main couple, it was quite interesting how they cut his sequence together because they went from her talking about the babies to him talking about making electronic music. And he also had a room in the house that was filled with pianos, filled with all of this stuff. And kind of like juxtaposing that against the nursery, kind of like showing the audience there's not really much difference between these two hobbies except for the fact and I noted this down when I was watching it this day except for the fact that his hobby seemed more legitimate because he was signed to a record label with uh, Universal Records at one point and had other collaborators and I wondered whether there was sort of how we measure the legitimacy of adult hobbies and do we measure them by tangible accolades or monetization because there definitely is a conversation here about there is a jarring sense for the average person seeing older women play with dolls that you wouldn't necessarily get if you saw a man with his Lego collection or that sort of thing. Gender roles here are quite interesting, I think. This might just be a classic Mary Douglas matter out of place. The doll is typically something for a child. It's a toy. It's And now we have someone who's not in that category, transgressing the category of adulthood and entering into sort of the childhood realm and you know that's sort of the classic leaving your assigned category and entering into another one transgressing those boundaries as douglas is like one of the you know foundational parts of 
discussed and um, I imagine that's part of the reaction. You look at the online reaction to say bronies or men who play with my little ponies and how wrongly attacked and vilified as being sort of unusual, creepy, weird. I think that has a lot to do with the fact they're seen as crossing those sorts of boundaries and I imagine this is doing something similar. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of questions on a lot of the content that I've seen where it's like, well, you're clearly at an age where you can have kids. Why don't you just have kids instead of having dolls? Because for for girls, like, the whole lifestyle of motherhood is kind of, like, experienced and achieved through these material goals when we're kids. And that is continuing onwards at an age. So it does, you're right in saying it does kind of, like, transgress sort of those kind of, like life points or like those real age barriers that we kind of like give ourselves of when it is and isn't appropriate to do things. I think it's also a smidge more than age. I I absolutely Mm -hmm. think it's age. I reckon there's an aspect of the make-believe to it as well because your comment about men and Lego, I was thinking that and I'm like, a guy like, this is my like thousand piece rocket or whatever is what it is. But if you saw a couple of men like picking up a bunch of spaceships and running around the living room like they were kids... That would be a lot weirder. But it would be better if they had kids of their own because then they're playing with the kids. If a woman were playing with a reborn doll with a kid, the uncanniness of the dolls does freak me out a bit. That is just a fundamental, I'm not getting past that. I think there's something about being an adult and playing imaginative games that is tough, that is different. I find that interesting though in the sense that it's like it's totally okay for an adult to play with their kids and their toys. But if the kids are removed and the adult is playing with the toys, then it's incorrect. Even if the adult's intentions with their physical children is to because they love dolls. I find that interesting that we're only allowed to partake in this childlike fantasy playtime at certain ages or when we're with people that are in those age groups and we can't actually continue that as uh, as adults. As... And like we didn't even talk about how that content is monetized. Like... There's so many layers here. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's all the time we have to talk about reborn dolls. Alex, what have you been thinking of this week? So by the time this podcast comes out, it will no longer be Social Sciences Week. But as it does every year, it gets me thinking about why do we do this? I mean, Social Sciences, judging by the cuts at UWA and across many Australian universities, is not valued by a lot of people out there, but... We're on this show. We're here. What is the point of anthropology? Is there a point beyond they often pack us up and send us to cool places to do research? I think the term social science is quite different as well in Australia because I I did most of my education in the UK and anthropology had always been called social science. Well, to me, it naturally feels like a social science, but then I wonder how much I'm actually basing that off of a felt reaction rather than a thought one. Because if you really ask me to differentiate between what the humanities are and what the social sciences are, I'm not sure I could give a satisfactory definition on for either of those and why one is, you know, different from the other. In all honesty, while I do think of anthropology as a social science, I actually think in many ways you could argue, I think it's the border case. Like, I think anthropology very much marks the board between the humanities and social sciences because my understanding is that humanities deal a lot more with meaning and the meaning of things anthropology i think we deal with meaning but we try and deal with it in an empirical way or at least i I strongly believe that anthropology is an empirical science although i know that is controversial within anthropology but i think the fact that that's controversial is what marks us as the border right like we don't really say that literature studies 
has to be empirical, at least not to the best of my knowledge. Oh, because, you know, I did my master's degree in UCL in the UK. And out, mm-hmm. just outside the department, there's this plug that says, anthropology is the most humanistic of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities. It was quoted by an American cultural anthropologist called Alfred Kruger in 2003. Anthropology is trying, at least from my observation today, the discipline tries to make themselves more scientific. And which is why I think they would be much more happier being under the social science camp rather than the humanities camp. Wow, that's interesting. And yeah, that's where the money comes from as well. So. <laughs> to bring it back to sort of my original question, why do we do this? What is the value of anthropology and the social sciences? What is the value that people are missing who are, that are closing down the anthropology department at UWA? I think it also depends on what your subject is as well what sub-discipline of anthropology you're in because i would think that you know archaeologists are able to position themselves in stem and they they kind of like benefit from being more quantitative and even the empiricity of archaeologists is a lot more objective with air quotes compared to something like what i do as an ethnomusicologist because i mean my empirical statements are a lot more subjective and it's not just my subjectivity but it's also my interlocutor's subjectivity so whatever i'm saying how how true can it be well i came to anthropology slightly strange way i started off as a political science undergraduate and i'm still primarily interested in political questions and politics is mostly what interests and drives my research so really i suppose i'm coming to politics through anthropology and I think what anthropology is particularly good at giving is an in-depth, focused human account of how policies and how the state manifests itself. I think the graphic method is potentially the best way of achieving that. And understanding how you can trace this sort of policy process from these top places down to a street level. And I think universities would be sorely lacking if we were to remove that from departments and from their research agendas. Yeah, I guess what makes social science so special is ethnography right and fieldwork because you look at things from a different perspective from other disciplines it's bottom up rather than top down so yeah and i think when we only focus on the quantitative side of data it's very easy to make sweeping statements about large groups of people that as anthropologists we know is not (laughs) accurate always or good and sometimes it is really important to get that lived experience in order to understand people although to play devil's advocate for a second here isn't anthropology kind of really frustrating in the way it's like well i can tell you a lot about these six people in this particular community but we nearly all have a real reluctance often to draw those sweeping generalizations so people say well that's nice for those six people what do I do with this information now? That's also the hardest question for just to answer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Often the people that we work with want us, or at least express some sort of desire for this knowledge to be used in a certain way. Mm. At least from sort of conversations with my friends who are anthropologists. It's unusual, especially when dealing with the questions that um, a lot of cultural anthropologists deal with. You work with a group of people and then they just want you to take this knowledge away, turn it into a PhD that will be maybe read by five, six people and then never seen again. Often our informants kind of hope for something more. There's often a sense of reciprocity that is expected. Sometimes, I think particularly, we always think in policy terms, whereas sometimes what your interlocutors want isn't necessarily related to the knowledge or like direct policy intervention. So sometimes it's hooking them up with a bureaucrat that you're a friend with. 
Yeah, for me, it was a little bit more different. Like, nobody asked me for anything. I think only one family asked me, um, oh, oh, could you send us all the recordings that you took of our grandmother? So all I needed to do was put them in a USB, you know, a thumb drive and just give it to them. And other than that, I was never asked to reciprocate, at least not directly. I think these kind of relationships are something quite unique to our discipline. How fundamental do we feel that learning social sciences like anthropology within a university sector is actually something that is extremely important? So my answer to that is, on a certain level, (laughs) I'm doing TFS, so of course I think everyone should know about anthropology. But on the other hand, I go, why? And often in anthropology, like, well, because we teach people to be better citizens and more socially aware and think more about the problems they face in the world and empathy blah 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 Mm -hmm. i simply have to believe that there's meaning in what we do right and i came to anthropology somewhat sideways because i think society really can be different and i think a lot of anthropologists have shown that i don't i really don't think that's actually should ought to be up for debate many people can't seem to see that is why i think there's a real call for am i going to do the really cliche thing do it yes you are (laughs) That's the best way to end uh, Yeah, podcast. you've got to end on a cliche. <laughs> Making the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Like, that's why I love economic anthropology. For all, it sounds dry really. The economy is so essential, but the economy is such a fundamental way of looking at the world. And we can do it different. So many people seem to think this is it. We do things this way because it's how it's done. But anthropology just shows it's not. We can do it so many other ways. Boom. And on that note, <laughs> that's all we have time for today. I want to thank the familiar strangers today, Alex. Thanks, Jared. Joe. Thank you. And Carolyn. Thank you. And me, your host, Jared. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Subscribe to our Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page patreon.com slash the familiar strange not the strange familiars which is another fun podcast just not ours you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at tfs tweets or look us up on facebook and instagram Music by Pete Lebro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>